I just arrived um, back home yesterday. I've just, as I said before, many of you came, I've just moved back to uh, the Bay Area. I'm living in Fairfax, just um, a few minutes away now, as of last month. And I just arrived back uh, last night, late, late in the afternoon, from Canada. I was up in Saskatchewan in Regina, which is a community that I've been involved with for about eight years. Uh, it's a beautiful, growing community up there. And I don't know if some of you know about the weather up in uh, Saskatchewan. Um, I experienced my first uh, cold temperature, a record of a, it was about a minus 38 uh, Fahrenheit, which interestingly enough is it, when you get down that low, centigrade and Fahrenheit are the same. I didn't know that. I, <laughs> I think it's about uh, 35, 30 or 35 where the centigrade and the Fahrenheit, they just, <laughs> there's no more differentiation. So um, it was actually only 29 uh, below zero Fahrenheit. And then uh, with a windshield, it was another 10 degrees. So it was very, <laughs> very interesting because it wasn't actually that difficult, you know, because nobody stays outside for very long. <laughs> you just sort of run from the car to the, to the building. And they keep the building so warm that it was uh, basically walking around in our t-shirts inside the buildings because they keep them so warm. So it's a very interesting experience uh, to, be, to be part of, part of that uh, weather uh, condition. Also, a uh, funny thing happened. I was there teaching a, a two-day non-residential weekend. And in the morning, Saturday, uh, Saturday morning, when we were driving out, it was about 25 minutes outside of the town. Um, there was, it was about 8.30 in the morning. And uh, there, we're just driving. It was a road very much like Sir Francis Drake. And there's about five cars in front of us. And I was with uh, my two friends who live there. And they both, at the same time, they said, I wonder where those cars are going. And it occurred to me that, that they would even be thinking about where those cars are going, because do you ever think when you're on the road, wonder where those cars are going? Well, apparently it was so unusual for there to be any other cars on the road that the, they were just startled that there were anybody going anywhere at 8.30 in the morning on Saturday morning. Um, and so they realized, of course, that they were all going to the retreat, or they, they wouldn't have been on the road, because nobody there, th that road really didn't go anywhere that anybody would really want to go. And I thought, how dip, what a different mentality <laughs> than the one that I'm so used to living in uh, more uh, bigger cities or metropolitan areas. That, that kind of, that mind state that would actually arise that would say, I wonder where that car is going. It's just a very, very different perspective. And I found myself chuckling about that almost the entire morning, every time I would think about it. You know, just the way that they both dropped into that wondering about that. So that's just a bit of the prairie life that I was just involved in. You know, very, very different than the Bay Area. So while I was teaching the weekend, I was wondering what I would want to present to you this morning. And I thought that probably something would come out of the weekend. I was teaching the weekend on the four foundations of mindfulness. And the piece that I wanted to bring out this morning is a piece about, about knowing, knowing itself, which is really the basis of the practice, of the mindfulness practice that we're doing. So I want to just explore this, um, this idea, this area of knowing, knowing. What does it mean to know? 
wanted to um, read this one of my favorite poems from Kabir, the 15th century Indian mystic poet. Kabir says, are you looking for me? I'm in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues, nor in cathedrals, not in masses, nor curtains, not in legs winding around your own neck, not in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me, what is God? Kabir, he says, he is the breath inside the breath. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. He is the breath inside the breath. Read the whole poem? <laughs> Maybe I won't. Maybe you can look at it a little bit later. So our practice is taking us into knowing something knowing something that I have a sense, and maybe you do too, is not something we can necessarily know through the thinking mind. And yet, what we usually get engaged with, where we're so caught up through our entire day, mostly, when we sit down and we meditate, we realize how busy our mind is. And we seem to have, particularly in the Western culture, a very highly developed intellectual way of perceiving the world. And so that we're thinking our way, or rationalizing our way, or analyzing, figuring out our way through most of the things that we're involved in. And yet the spiritual traditions are pointing to the fact that we have to move beyond this intellectual understanding to know that which is really most important to us, to know that which is most dear to us, which is whatever name we want to put on that, you know, God, or divinity, or unity, or oneness, or our Buddha nature, whatever that is. Somehow we have to begin to have some understanding of what blocks that knowing or blocks that uh, uh, connection to that which is really important to us so that we can come into that union, we can come into that knowing. So the kind of knowing that is cultivated through this practice, through the practice of Vipassana or the mindfulness practice, is the practice that is encouraging us to, to let go of our thinking mind, or maybe sometimes not even letting go of, but seeing through the thoughts themselves, so that there's some way we can disengage. We're perhaps not so bound up in our thoughts, in our views, in our ideas, in our speculations, in the way that we are usually perceiving ourselves and this reality. So much of the mindfulness practice or the vipassana practice is really becoming familiar with settling into this knowing faculty, this way of knowing ourselves, knowing our minds, knowing our bodies, our emotions, knowing our, 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 our world around us, knowing others, but knowing in a way that isn't necessarily tainted, we might say, by our thoughts, our thinking about, our analyzing about, figuring out what it is. But seeing, we say, you know, the translation for Vipassana is to see things clearly, to see things as they are. This has actually almost become my mantra in the last few years. It's to, it, it, it evokes, when I just hear those words, 
to see things clearly, which is see things as they are. There's something that wakes up in me. I feel a sense of urgency, a sense of excitement to know what that means, to, to want to really deeply experience what it means to know something clearly or as it is. And you, get a, you get a sense of, of that um, excitement that can arise around that because what it implies, what the implication is that, in fact, maybe we're not seeing things very clearly. Maybe we're not knowing things as they are. And in my own experience, in my own practice, that understanding just opens and opens and expands and gets more vast and deeper. When I, even when I think I know <laughs> or start to have some sense that I know or understand, it seems like a whole other layer is pulled out from under me and there's a whole other expanse that needs to be understood, that needs to be seen. So this kind of knowing, this knowing that is not with the intellect, it's not through our thoughts, it's a pure, I, I might say it's a pure knowing, it's a, a pure perception pure perception, where we just see a thing for what it is before the thought arises, before the name arises, before the word arises. What is experience before the word arises? And what that brings us to is a kind of a deep silence, a deep silence that permeates within the experience around the experience, a silence that is present in all things. When we start to touch that which is before the word, before the concept. Usually we know, our th- particularly people who are uh, practicing and really starting to investigate their own thoughts, their own minds, we know a lot about what we're thinking about. You know, we even begin to have more mindfulness or more awareness about our thoughts. And yet, we still need to be watchful of how we get engaged in taking the thoughts to be the true reality. Because we still, and you know, probably until we're fully enlightened, we're going to be deceived by our thoughts. Hmm? There are so many layers of thoughts, both the conscious thought and the 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 thoughts that are just below consciousness, more the subconscious or the unconscious thoughts that are operating within our being, within our consciousness, that we are identified with and we take to be true and take to dictate our reality and the way things are. So the mindfulness practice, one of the things that we become aware of, we tend to, is mind itself, in thinking mind. And talk about mind, when we usually use the word mind, we're talking about thinking mind, conceptual mind, mind that is um, describing, dictating, uh, uh, reporting, commentating on how things are. And then the problem-solving mind, the mind that's usually engaged in trying to figure things out. Do you know that mind? Have you had some, (laughs) have some awareness, some insight into that mind? So we're usually talking about that mind when we talk about insight or awareness of mind itself. And yet the interesting thing is when we're talking about mindfulness or when we start to practice mindfulness, we're saying be mindful of this thinking mind. Be mindful of the thinking mind. So what that means is that there is some aspect of mind 
that is able to witness or to observe the thinking mind. That means that there's some aspect of the mind that is not thinking, but the mind, we're saying, the mind that is witnessing, or sometimes we say uh, consciousness, the consciousness that witnessed the thinking mind. So there has to be, in order to be mindful, in order to do our practice, in order to really cultivate what this practice is about, we need to start becoming quite familiar with that which is not the thinking mind, but that which is knowing the mind, or that which is conscious, that which is able to witness, that which can observe even the thinking mind. We know oftentimes, many of you have had the experience where we can just witness a um, we can witness while we're sitting and listening to somebody speak, or we can l- witness uh, the sounds of the turkeys gobbling. Uh, we can uh, witness the uh, food that we're eating or the smell of a flower. And there really can be a strong sense of just being purely with that experience without having the mind impose all of its chatter and its um, ideas and views on top of that experience. And yet, what does it mean to actually observe or witness the mind itself? To be in that silent, observing, witnessing place where we just know the thought for what it is. We know the thought as a thought. We know the thoughts as an association of thoughts. We know the images that arise just as images where we're not so caught up. We're not so bound up in those thoughts themselves where we actually have a sense where we're resting or we're located more in the witness position than in the thought itself. Mm -hmm. We actually come more fully into the uh, full full experience of the witness, of of the observer or the observing location. Our practices, when the Buddha instructs, the, the, the basic instruction in the Pali Canon, in the, um, in the Buddhist text, for us to practice is through the, what's called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness being mindfulness of body, mindfulness of our feeling, which is actually the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, the mindfulness of our mind, And the fourth foundation is mindfulness of dharma, or the qualities of dharma, mental qualities that inform the mind so that the mind moves more fully into the vision of the dharma. So this is our basic instruction that we practice. This is what the mindfulness practice is, a mindfulness of body, of feeling, of mind, of the principles of the dharma themselves. And so we are encouraged to know this position, this location, this place of resting into the mindfulness itself, into the witnessing location itself, so that we can know our experience not through the mind. Not through the mind. This is, to me, what's really exciting and really powerful about this practice, is that there's a possibility of arriving or landing more fully right here and now, into this experience as it is, without the whole, bringing in the whole framework or the overlay of past, present, and future, which we know is, when we think about it, the past is, can seem really big and really heavy, 
the future can seem really big and really heavy. And when we think about the present, we can even make that into somewhat of a burden as well. And when we let it go, we land, we arrive, we um, fall into this silence, the stillness, the, the beauty, the exquisiteness, the fullness of this present moment, this present moment, and get to examine all the ways that we relate to or respond to this present moment experience. This is, this is from a 14th century Japanese Zen master, Ikkyu, who says, the wise heathens have no knowledge. They just keep their mind continually set on the way. There are no big shot Buddhas in nature, and 10,000 sutras are distilled in a single song. 10,000 suttas are distilled in a single song. So even the Buddhist teachings, you know, they're, I mean, they're 10,000. I think there's about 10,000 suttas, you know, that, that describe what the Buddha is teaching, what the Buddha has taught through the Buddha's own uh, words that have been brought down, through his uh, disciples that have, been, that have been brought down. But we can let all of that go. We don't have to really know that. But what we need to know is what is here right now, right in front of us and what it means to know, to know without intellectual knowledge, without conceptual knowledge. Do you have a sense, as you're sitting here right now, what that knowing is, what that knowing feels like? Because my sense of you, as I'm sitting here with you, is that you're sitting there very quietly and attentively, most likely, for the most part, (laughs) if I'm lucky, listening to my words. And knowing the simplicity of this experience, just knowing that you're sitting there, knowing that you're listening, knowing that I'm sitting here talking to you. And something is very alive about that. It's very present. It's very real. And if we really can fully rest and engage in this experience, then nothing else really has to happen. All the problems that we have in our lives or all the future problems that we're expecting to have in our lives, we can just let them drop away. Let them drop away. And rest into the simplicity of this knowing, the single song, the single song that, that is being sung right at this moment. In that way, we begin to let go of the heaviness, the heaviness, the burden that we feel we're so often carrying in our lives. And this is what's available in every moment, every moment of our experience. It's helpful when we're being reminded, when we come to a situation where the Dharma is being uh, spoken, we come into a Sangha or community with like-minded people, when we're doing our meditation practices. This is our reminder for us to help us come into the singleness of this experience. And yet the potential is available for us in every moment every moment. It's so, I I feel so excited when I think of that because any moment I'm able to let go of that which I'm carrying through my conceptual mind, either through past or or if it's the past ideas or the future ideas, can just let go and, and follow the Buddha's instructions, which is mindfulness of body. 
mindfulness of the feeling tone and just fully coming into that, just feeling my body and breathing wherever I am, whether I'm um, uh, in my meditation or whether I'm uh, at work or I'm, I'm uh, at the supermarket or in the car, coming into the fullness of just that singleness of experience. So the Buddha, the major instruction for us in our practice is to become familiar or grounded in this knowing faculty, what it means to know. This is sati or mindfulness. We, we use the tool or the vehicle of mindfulness to help us come more fully into the understanding of what these teachings are about, what this existence is about for us. This kind of knowing through the mindfulness is also called bare attention. Bare attention, where we bring our attention to different aspects of our experience. The mindfulness is the recalling or the recollecting or the remembering to be present. That's the function of mindfulness. Mindfulness has that simple function, is to remember, to, to recall the mind, to, to, to recollect the mind in the present so that we can do our work, we can, we can do the investigation that needs to be done. This is the bare attention before the concept arises, before the, the thought arises. And then the ability to even be able to turn that mindfulness towards the mind itself so that it doesn't become an obstruction, it doesn't become a distraction for our practice of mindfulness. So why, why really do we have to do this? You know, sometimes it can seem like such an effort, such a burden for us, you know, to constantly be bringing our mind back. You know, sometimes on, on retreats, it even happened this weekend, even though it wasn't a fully silent retreat. But I was really encouraging people to pay quite a lot of attention to the different uh, foundations as I was presenting them. And then um, after the one day Saturday, uh, the next morning people came back and I, was, I asked them how things were uh, for them through the evening. And so many people reported that they were fully exhausted that night. The, the night after the workshop, that they were, so, that they were, it was so wonderful to be able to go home and not have to pay attention. <laughs> you know, to just really relax. You know, that sometimes the mindfulness, sometimes the practice, or the, um, uh, might even say the expectation that we have on ourselves in the practice can seem very exhausting. You know, sometimes we just want to let go of it, like forget it. I don't want to do it anymore, you know. can feel like such a hassle, like so much effort. Mm-hmm. And yet, really, by continuing to do the practice, we find out how we're actually applying effort in a way that's not very helpful, because th- therefore we're feeling exhausted. If, we're actually stu- if we actually come into the mindfulness practice in a wise way, in a true way, we find, out, we find that truly it's, it's very effortless itself. That mindfulness, as it's flowing, as we rest into it, it becomes an effortless practice. And this is the, we might say, the goal in a way, or that which we're moving towards, is knowing that effortless quality that's available to us in, in, in each moment. But we need to practice because we find ourselves, not only ourselves, but the community, the global community, in a tangle of suffering. We are truly in a tangle of suffering. 
And I knew a few years ago that it didn't seem like the, the global community was actually evolving into a more enlightened state. But after the last six months, now I know that we're not evolving together into a more enlightened state. You know, it, it, it makes us wonder with the events that are occurring if, if things aren't falling into more chaos, more confusion, more, more, more of a pit of suffering. And so each one of us, in a way, is responsible for what each of us can do to help bring us out, us as global community, out of this pit of suffering. What each one of us can find, each one of us can be responsible for so that we can find our way out of this, find our way out of this tangle, whether it's the tangle in our own minds or whether it's the tangle of the larger community in which we find ourselves in. So when we talk about mindfulness as a vehicle to untangle this tangle of suffering, it means that we're untangling from our delusion. We're untangling from our confusion so that we arrive more fully into our ground of being. We arrive more fully into the ground of truth, into the, into the ground where we can know things as they are. And knowing things as they are, we recognize our non-separate nature, our selfless non-separate nature, and the nature, the non-separate nature of all things. Well, we don't have to get involved in the conflict and the struggle and the, and the attachment and the aversion and the hatred and the cruelty when we really truly see the true nature of all things. Confusion means that when we believe the mind, our thinking mind, is pointing to a true reality, that's confusion. (laughs) When we take our thoughts and think and really believe that that is the way things are, the way I think things are is the way things are, and there isn't much investigation or there isn't much um, questioning put into that, that is confusion. That's where we get caught. And that's where the suffering arises from. Coming out of the confusion, which means coming out of the delusion, means we come more into the uh, wider space or the spaciousness of things where anything is possible. We have, when we let go of our fixed ideas about the way things are, then anything is possible. We, we open into a place of real creativity and possibility. When the mind is in confusion, it really doesn't allow for wisdom to arise. Wisdom can only arise when the mind is in open space, when it's in a spacious, unidentified, fixed way, fixed location. Our intuitive, we might say intuitive wisdom, the wisdom that we are, the wisdom that we are in the fullness of our being, and the wisdom that develops over time, the wisdom that we gather through our contact with ourselves and with this world that, that, that falls into an intuitive uh, uh, location that we can draw on, that we can access. But we can only access it when the mind is not bound up in its own confusion. So through the mindfulness, we can begin to pay attention to when the mind is getting fixated, when the mind gets attached, when the mind falls into places of, of attachment, into aversion, into hatred. Because, because unless we recognize this, unless we bring some attention to it, 
that's, that's, that's the place we live from. We live in reactivity. We live in confusion. We live, in, uh, we live caught in our, in our attachment, in our, our, our hatred. And this is not where the heart is longing to be. This is not how the heart longs to express itself. So we really want to understand, part of the mindfulness practice is really understanding what creates this obstruction to our wisdom, to our deeper knowing, to our intuition. The practice, practice through uh, paying attention again and again and again, we can start to recognize what our obstructions are so that we can let go. We can let go and fall more fully into a place of truth into a place of wholeness, into a place of deep connection with ourselves. But when we do that, when we, when we fall into that place within ourselves, then that connects us to all things. We're connected. There's no longer any barrier. There's no longer any division. <coughs> when we talk about the wisdom aspect and the development of the wisdom, which these teachings are about, this is the, uh, it broadens out what the Buddha actually talked about because the Buddha talked about mindfulness, which is sati, but actually when you read the text, the Buddha uh, didn't stop at sati or mindfulness, but it's called sati sampajanya, and sampajanya means clear comprehension. So the Buddha taught mindfulness, which is that knowing moment to moment to moment what's happening, but knowing within a broader context of what's happening so that we can function in a conscious and a wise way in this world. Now an example of that is after this um, uh, morning when you go out and you get into your car, you can be mindful of, of turning the car keys and putting your hands on the wheel and putting your foot on the accelerator, but that's not enough. <laughs> you have to be mindful of the, how the whole car works in itself. You have to be mindful that you're actually beginning to drive and you're on a road where there may be other cars coming the other way. And you have to be mindful of the actual destination so that when you get in your car, you actually wind up where you want your car to go. So it doesn't mean that we're blocking out the past, we're blocking out the future, that it has no more relevance. It just means that it has relevance in a, in a wise and conscious way. It has relevance in a way that's actually going to benefit us to uh, generate and create the conditions in our life that we want to. It's not, we're not going to be generating conditions in life that we don't want, which is usually what we're doing <laughs> a lot of the time when we find ourselves in places, whether it's within ourselves or within, with other people or in situations, we're wondering, how did I get here? How did this happen? How did I fall into this situation? And so as we start to recognize through the mindfulness and the clear comprehension, which includes the past, includes the future, we can start to have more influence. We can start to have more uh, impact in the direction that our lives are going in at any given moment. So mindfulness, sati, but within a wider view, clear comprehension. It's called sati sampajanya. This is the wisdom. Mindfulness itself doesn't really have the wisdom. But mindfulness is the vehicle for the wisdom to express itself. Mindfulness is the wisdom. It's the, it's, the, it's the possibility for the wisdom to come through. The wisdom that we, that we are, the wisdom that we are, but also the wisdom that has accumulated over a long period of time. 
so that as we we say, you know, as we get older, we feel more wise. You know, it's one of the great things about getting older. <laughs> we wouldn't want to be 18 again, <laughs> a lot of us. At least that's the way I feel, you know, because there's an accumulation of wisdom. And hopefully that's a useful wisdom, wisdom that's actually going to bring about more happiness and peace in our lives and to those beings around us who come into contact with us. An interesting aspect that I want to bring up is that the Buddha, in, when the Four Foundations, when the Buddha talks about mindfulness, the Buddha talks about mindfulness only to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. The Buddha doesn't talk about being mindful every minute of our lives for the rest of our lives, but rather only to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. This is an interesting point, I feel, that at times needs to be brought up, particularly for people who have been practicing a long time. Because there can be a little bit confusion about mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness. And sometimes you can feel like, I am sick of it. You know, I'm sick of being mindful. I don't want to be mindful anymore. Isn't, isn't there a next step? Because you know? <laughs> it can feel like a, um, a, a too much doing when the mind starts to feel more relaxed, when the mind starts to feel more rested, when, when there is a natural ease in the day, in our lives, we can see, like, well, why, why be mindful? I already feel very present. I already feel very connected. So what is, this, what is this place of this mindfulness? Well, the Buddha is actually pointing to the end of mindfulness when he says only to the extent necessary for bare knowledge. It actually implies that when bare knowledge, when the bare knowledge is in place, then we can drop the mindfulness. The job of mindfulness comes to an end. The job of mindfulness comes to the end. Mindfulness meaning that recollecting, the remembering, the uh, pulling the attention back to the present moment. The job comes to an end because the mind finds its natural resting place. The mind finds a place to rest so that it doesn't have to call up. It doesn't have to recollect. It doesn't have to remember. But there's a resting in awareness itself. So the mindfulness becomes not one of doing, but the mindfulness shifts into being a characteristic of, a, of an aware mind, of an awake mind, of an enlightened mind. It's no longer that there is one who is being mindful or one who is calling up this practice of mindfulness, but one rests more fully in their natural state of being, where mindfulness is, is it, it, there's no need for a, a supportive mindfulness, but mindfulness is already a clear characteristic of that state of being. The, an awake mind is present. An awake mind is connected. An awake mind is already doing what it needs to do. There isn't anything else that has to be done. When the mind is naturally aware, when the mind is naturally at rest, then if we keep applying mindfulness, it becomes a hindrance to our practice because it keeps calling up a sense of someone who needs to be mindful. And then we miss the possibility <coughs> of resting, really resting, which is what we all want. We all just want to rest. So we can, we can, you know, this isn't, it doesn't mean that this is true only for people who are quite advanced in their practice. 
It means that any time that you find that you're either, when you sit down in your meditation practice and you find that you are actually quite alert, you're quite present, you can just rest into that. It's like let go into that. You don't have to keep um, ha- having a sense of needing to be mindful just to let go and rest. One of my teachers, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, uh, a Dzogchen teacher, he said it's very much like that once a bell is struck, the sound resonates. And the bell doesn't have to be struck again in order to hear the sound, but you can just let go into the sound, let go into the resonance. So once the mindfulness is established, there's a resonance from that mindfulness, from that awareness. So we can just let go into that. What would it mean for you, particularly those of you who are fairly practiced and have been doing this for some time, what would it mean for you to let go into that resonance of awareness, into that alertness, into that wakefulness itself? And it wouldn't necessarily have to be during your meditation practice. It might be when you're walking around outside in nature or whether you're with a person who you're engaged with. It may not be that you have to call up that mindfulness, but you can really fully let go and rest into the experience itself. Rest into the experience of knowing what's happening. The knowing is the alertness. The knowing is the awakeness. The knowing is that vibrancy that's there when you're fully engaged, when you're fully present, when the mind isn't impacting, when the mind isn't engaging in the way that it normally is. We have many opportunities to be able to uh, begin to experience this for ourselves, to let that, um, that natural resonance of our being start to permeate more fully through the experience without the sense of doing our mindfulness practice. What would that really mean for each of us to more fully rest into that stillness of the non-doing? And then we just see what's there in that wakeful presence. Just see what's there. Because awareness itself is that which knows. There isn't anything else that has to be done. We are in life. We are in that living, vibrant presence. Nothing has to be done. And then the Buddha, in the four foundations of mindfulness in that particular discourse, the Buddha says, he, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. says that after each of the foundations, after a recognition of body, he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And I I think that's a useful phrase for us to reflect on because this word, independent, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world, so that we're not dependent on anything being any particular way, the conditions of our life being any particular way. But just as the conditions are arising in any particular formation, that's enough. That's enough for clear comprehension and for mindfulness and bare knowledge. Anything that is occurring, not clinging to anything in the world. And, with, and as the mind rests in that 
wakeful presence, in that wakeful attention, everything continues to arise quite naturally, quite spontaneously. The emotions, the thoughts, the feelings, the sounds, the sights, the tastes, the smells, the touches, everything of this world continues to arise. But it's like a thief entering an empty house. There's nothing for the thief to take. They still all arise, and they can even feel like it's a thief entering our house. But there's nothing for that thief to steal. It's just what it is, just as it is. Yes, come in, take whatever you like. (laughs) It's not mine anyhow. It doesn't belong to me. I don't have to hold on to any of this. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, sights, sounds, tastes, whatever it is. When we look at it in this way, when we look at our experience in this way, then we can really look to see what is that glue that seems like it's holding it all together. What is that glue? Can we just find, maybe we can find the solvent for that glue. Just let everything fall apart so that no longer are we holding to anything. The liberation teachings of the Buddha are about this letting go. It's about this letting go. It's the release of the clinging. It's the release of the holding. It's the release of anything needing to be any particular way. And when we fall into that, then everything is okay. (laughs) Everything, we touch that perfection that is there in every moment of our experience. This is the the free mind, the free mind that is not involved in the manipulation and the control, but the mind that can open and receive all things as they are. And when we open in that way, what is left is love. What remains is love. Because love is the expression of the non-clinging mind. It's the expression of the mind that is free. Let's just sit together for just a minute. (coughs) The knowing that it's not the thinking mind, the knowing that is there before the word arises. Simply knowing your experience. And then look for a moment to see if this knowing requires any effort at all. And if you can feel some of the effort arising, what happens if you let go of the effort? So, have some time for some discussions and questions. Anything that might be arising around this? Mm-hmm. So the question is about mindfulness of feeling and acceptance around letting the feelings be as they are. Is, what was the second part? Accepting reality 
Mm -hmm. Accepting a reality that isn't colored by feelings. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about uh, color, uh, reality being colored by feelings, it's as, as if the emotions can become so strong that they blur a sense of being able to see clearly. Um, there's a, that all you're really seeing is through the filter of your own emotional response at times. Yeah, and, and what to do about that. Um, I mean, first of all, it's very important to recognize that there is some way out of that. <laughs> you know, I think, I mean, it was many, many years in my life before I was aware there was any way out of that. I thought that was just what this life was going to be about. And then I started through the practice realizing that I could start to have some insight and understanding around working with my emotions so that they wouldn't color my reality so much. So very much, very much, um, uh, the mo working with emotions actually falls under the third foundation, which is mind. And that's because our emotions are, are controlled by our mind. And usually what we're thinking is what brings about the emotional response. And sometimes when we're just might, might have a strong emotional response, we may not be in touch with many thoughts. We just know that there's some strong feeling. But there's some beliefs operating there. There's some way that we're perceiving the situation where our, our um, unconscious beliefs are imposing in the moment. So, so through the mindfulness practice, we just we turn our mindfulness to the emotion itself or to the feeling itself, um, because that's the predominant experience. And it's so important to be watchful if you're bringing more my mental activity on top of the emotion. That could come through judging, judging yourself, blaming yourself, making yourself wrong. Um, that could come through more proliferation of the story that you're involved in that's giving you the emotional response as it is. And so it's really quite, it's quite a good practice, particularly in emotions or strong emotions, to, as much as you can, let go of the mental activity. Notice if there is judgment or negativity towards yourself. Let that, see if you can let it go. Let go of the story that's operating or that's imposing. And, and see if you can, seeing if you can feel what's happening in your body. It's such a great practice just to start feeling what's happening in your body. Where, what is, what's happening in your stomach, what's happening in your heart, what's happening in your shoulders, what's happening in your face, in your, your blood, your heat, your temperature, all that. And you just feel that. And that brings you fully into presence, fully into connection. And you're not, you're not abandoning yourself. You're not, you're not distracting yourself from that. You're just fully feeling that. And as you do that, that's an act of love. It's an act of loving kindness to hold yourself in that way and not to judge yourself, not to be hard on yourself. To, to love yourself in that way, and then you see that it starts to soften. It starts to shift out. There's nothing you have to do to make it go away or to shift it. It just starts to soften because you're not feeding it anymore through either your negativity or through the story. That's what starts to cool the emotions so that they don't become so much a filter. They cool down because emotions are quite hot. Whether they're pleasant emotions or whether they're painful emotions, they're pretty hot. <laughs> you know, very, a lot of excitement, a lot of heat arises in that. And so it's often talked about that uh, with nirvana, with nirvana, with enlightenment, it's a cool, there's a cooling of our experience. Mm. There's more equanimity in the way we're relating to things. So the negativity and the story. <laughs> <Is that laughs> you probably know what I'm referring to. <laughs> Or maybe mm -hmm. even pre-kindergarten, so that um, as I heard you talk about knowing, what really came up for me was the 
piece of that that is available to me now, which is the experience of not knowing. Mm -hmm. And what that's about for me mm -hmm. is that for so long, for so many decades, I filtered what I call knowing through my mind. Yes. So that what I need to do is to allow that sense of knowing to come up and then to very gently disengage myself from Yes, that. that's right. And mm -hmm. that experience is the experience of not knowing. Yes. And it's conceivable to me mm -hmm. that maybe sometime I'll get to first grade, but it may never happen. Uh -huh. <laughs> and first grade for me would be actually to have the experience of knowing. Uh -huh. But I'm not looking for that mm -hmm. because this is what's real for me, which is that gentle process of moving towards not knowing. Yes. So yes, well, actually, you know, in lis listening to you to report that, the way that you're using not knowing is the same way I'm using the word knowing. <laughs> but, but, but you have to do it your way. So, so I, be, I think that's great, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because I actually wanted to talk, you talk about that piece a little bit too. So, this is perfect. Because sometimes you may have that, that, that may be the step for you. You know, it's going through the knowing of the conceptual knowing into the not knowing through the concept. Which, where does that bring you? Where do you, where, what, what, where do you fall when you let go of the knowing? And where I fall, of course, is into the very slightest taste of freedom. Yes. And I'm not defined by that. Knowing. Yes. So that's not me. And so that's just the very slightest taste of freedom. And yes. That, in its own way, is an encouragement mm -hmm. to continue that path. Yes. That's so beautiful. That's beautiful. Just that taste of freedom. Taste of freedom. And that's the taste. When I was talking about the bell, when you hit the bell and it resonates, that taste of freedom. Let that resonate. <laughs> Let it resonate. So rather than kind of thinking you need to do anything in that, just falling into that taste of freedom. So that grows and expands just in itself. <laughs> the, the other piece for me is around the emotion. Uh-huh which is equally challenging and difficult, which for me, because I've also spent so many decades being defined by those emotions, that the best I'm able to do in my pre-kindergarten state is to not resist the emotions, yes. but just to allow yes. them to be there. And then what I get to see is that if I don't resist them, and they're present, and I'm not fully identified with them, then they do what they do, which is to move towards something else yes. because they're not my deepest experience, and so they won't stick around mm -hmm. if I don't do this thing of identifying myself with yes. them or resisting them. <coughs> but that's unfortunately also a very slow learning mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. and so it brings for me a practice which is very hard for me, which is patience. Yes. And I yearn, <laughs> well, this is the other piece because I yearn so much to know and to not have this place, mm -hmm. and that very process yes. of yearning keeps me in the way it's when I get to watch very young children who fall down, and they don't even bother to um, notice they've fallen down because it's so much art. <laughs> oh God, if I could ever be that young again. Yes. <laughs> Yes, well, there is a way you're speaking that there's a longing to return to that innocence. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. I have a question or comment about meditation. Uh, I think you said to be attentive. Um, when, my, when I reach the ideal meditation for me, there is no attention. I'm just totally in the void. And I don't. I'm not thinking at all. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware. 
Well, it sounds like there is awareness, though. You said there's no awareness. It, it, it sounds like there's awareness because you know that you're in the void. Mm-hmm. Is that right? You know. You know that you're in the void. So the, uh, so the knowing is the same as awareness. The knowing is awareness. When we talk about attention, usually that word is uh, more with the bare attention, moment-to-moment unfolding experience. But it sounds like there isn't so much distinction in the moments, moment-to-moment-to-moment. There's just a a vast kind of experience. Mm -hmm. So then, the only thing that matters is the knowing. So what you want to do is make sure that that knowing stays alive so that you don't lose connection with that voidness, is what you're calling it. Because if you do, then you're, you start to, you'll, you, you fall asleep or you fall into a trance. Right. And then it's not meditation anymore. It's, it's, it, you've moved out of it. So all that matters is the, the vibrancy of the knowing, even if it's voidness. Well, you're not there. <laughs> you're not there. You've actually fallen back into your mind. You've, bro- you've fallen back into duality. Yeah. It doesn't have to be through the thought. It doesn't have to be through the thought, but it's the way that the consciousness gets locked into fixation. You get fixed into, fix- into something that seems somewhat um, uh, solid. Even it can, a, trance like, a trance can feel qu- quite static. Consciousness is vibrant. <laughs> and so the way to stay, uh, for when, you're ta- when we're talking about that kind of subtlety, the only thing you need to be attentive to is just that, sh- that knowing, that, that you know your experience. You, you can say, you can report it later. You can say, yeah, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. So the, the actual experience is not as important as that vibrancy of, of consciousness. And that will increase, that will enhance. Well, see, it, 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 I mean, these are always good, good, good points to, to talk about because it, we don't want to misunderstand what's really being pointed to. And it's not that the, the suffering becomes okay. The suffering's not okay. It's never okay. No? But it's to understand through the acceptance of it, the way it is, what brings about the suffering, what conditions give rise to the suffering. So if we're in reactivity to it, if, I, if I'm angry, if I'm hating the situation, let's talk about the, the world situation, if I'm hating it, if I'm angry about it, if I'm demanding that it changes, then I'm, I'm, I won't be able to see very clearly. My, I won't be able to contact my own intuitive wisdom very well to know how to respond in a, in a wise way to what's happening. So the first thing that has to happen is I have to drop out of my own reactivity. It's the only way my mind can start to open out and to be clear. When I drop out of my reactivity, what I come into 
what happens is the shift that happens there is my heart opens in the acceptance and I feel compassion for what I see. My heart starts to be touched by the condition and I feel, I, I feel that, that longing for it to be different, but from a place of compassion, a place of, 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 of that not wanting the suffering to be in the world. My heart opens, my heart quivers, my, heart, my heart's touched by what I see. I'm not in reactivity, you know, you know it has to be different, but I'm, but I'm allowing my heart to, to, to be touched by the situation and then something can happen. That's that okayness we're talking about. It's only an okayness that, so that we don't get bound up in our, in our, in our anger or in our attachments. Mm-hmm. That, that's the shift that happens. Is, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have to, you know, whatever, whatever causes a contraction or a constriction in our being, is, it, then we're caught in mind. Mind is constriction. Mind is contraction. That's the only thing that can create that. So, so it's, a, it's a softening, a letting go of the ideas of the mind into the heart. Into the heart. So the heart can respond. Then we can get something done. <laughs> um, I, I, I wonder that it's possible to see clearly things as they are. In order to do that, we have to get below the personality view and, and the conditioning. And is it possible for, for two people to see who, I, I guess those, <laughs> those who are fully enlightened will see clearly and agree that yes, this is the way things actually are? Yes? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so. I mean, rash, logically, it makes sense. But yeah. I wonder that on a. On a uh, um, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very good question. Um, but what you, one thing you need to, we need to recognize, too, when you talked about the two enlightened beings getting together, and maybe, it, you know, as soon as one of them start to talk, <laughs> there's going to be differences. <laughs> right? <laughs> so what we're really referring to is a nonverbal meeting. So if we're not talking, is the personality there? Is the conditioning there? Hmm? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah. Well, it's you know. <laughs> well, for a moment, we maybe we could need <laughs> a drop in there for a moment. You know, if I'm not talking and I'm not thinking, where is the personality? Where is the conditioning? Because conditioning is past. Is all that's in your behavior. Say I'm not talking, I'm not thinking, and I'm not moving. <laughs> what, what about breathing? <laughs> <laughs> breathing. I'm still alive. <laughs> it's still in my body. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you know, we're just in a moment. I think it's not so far away. I, I think it's not so far away that 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 letting go, really letting go of the whole conceptual framework of who I am, 
of who you are, of what this world is, and just for a moment, meeting there. Maybe in the next moment or so, you know, that'll all come back. But can we drop it for a moment? For a moment. Because in, in, in the uh, speaking physiologically, in the sympathetic response to, uh, uh, to stress, to danger, the fight-or-flight mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. response, mm-hmm. that cannot, can that be deconditioned? I mean, that's a good question, because I have heard that it, it, it can be. I mean, it ha- I, I haven't had that experience myself, but I have heard of other teachers where that's happened, where the whole conditioning is dropped away. Uh, with one teacher I know of that she reports that she had, for a period of time, for uh, like a year, she had no recollection of how to respond to the world at all. Uh, but she was fully in touch with her nature. Now, I'm not sure how, you know, uh, I don't know if one can't function very well. <laughs> We're getting into some theoretical aspect here because I don't. This isn't my. You know, I don't. I don't have this uh, from my own experience. But if somebody would like to. very good and I think that is what meditation is pointing to it's that the opening that's a good good answer because it, it is the opening of consciousness so that there's more choice more sense of uh, how to interact how to relate with our environment we're not just caught in the conditioning itself so that there is that gap mm-hmm. and there's more access and contact with that gap yeah thank you we just have a few more minutes um, before 11 o'clock um, any last comments? Yes. I have a question about laundry list. Yes. I so very rarely sit and be quiet <laughs> that when I am sitting quiet, I, I find if I'm not experiencing the emotion of some pleasant situation, when I'm sitting in quiet, all of a sudden this, these lists will come up. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a tendency to want to go with those lists and say, that's really important. I, I have to do that. You know, I have to like remember that or write it down mm-hmm. right? and, and then of course I, I let go of it I, and then when I come out of the meditation I don't remember a single thing <laughs> <in my list. laughs> and, and how is it? Is it okay that you don't remember the things well, on your list? Yes and no because uh-huh. there are certain things that flash in my thinking process yeah. during that that I want to remember uh-huh. and, I, and then I uh-huh. Well, look at the consequences. Really examine the consequences mm-hmm. of, not forget, of not remembering your list. And there may be something sometimes where it's important that you remember them. And then it's fine just to jot it down, just to write it down. You know? It's really fine. Um, and yet it's also a very good inquiry in your own process to examine what things could you really let go of and what things are important. And it's, very, it's always good to um, increase that discriminating mind where we know what's important and what's not important because that's the basis of the letting go. Because if it, we, have to know, we have to know what to let go of and what not to let go of because if we, let go, if we don't let go, I mean, look at the consequences of that. And look at the consequences of not letting go. 
we know lots of people who are just trying to hold everything, you know, hold it all together, and it's very, it's disastrous. So, so part of the practice is this cultivation of knowing what to let go of and what not to let go of. And so this could be your laundry list, could be that practice. Okay? <laughs> okay, any last comments or questions or anything? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.